0: Uh, it is now twenty-eight minutes to eleven, and gosh, I haven't spoken to Hayden Dunnell, midweek media watch for quite some time. Kia ora, Hayden, Kia ora, Karen, nice to talk to you after all these weeks.
1: Yes, it's been—it has—it's been so long. I can't believe it. Where have you been?
0: Uh, I've been—I've been filling in for other people in uh, level three. As we, as we shuffle uh, around desks at work, it's, I don't think you've been in here for weeks and weeks, have you?
1: I haven't been in here for weeks and weeks, and, I, and before I wasn't... <laughs> I, had a, I actually had a baby. Well, I, didn't have, I had nothing to do with the having of the baby, but we had a baby two days before lockdown, so I was off for four weeks anyway.
0: Oh, congratulations. Uh, thank you. Congratulations. All right, well, you'd like to start with a good moment of journal, journalism from the week.
1: Absolutely. Start on the positive. This is from the one pm press briefing today. That's not something the government is considering, Jane. Can you say how many? Why not? 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 Anyone else? Okay. So that was Bridie Whitten asking, "Are you considering a snap level four lockdown?" And the response to that, according to News Talks, Jason Walls, the order of questioning there was. Bridie Witton, Derek Cheng, Ben Mackay, Thomas Manch, Derek Cheng again, Jenna Lynch, Jason Walls, Jane Patterson, Amelia Wade, and then Derek Cheng a third time. And that's solidarity, isn't it, Karen? I love to see that kind of united front from our reporters in the face of a deflection from a minister. Absolutely love to see it, and I hope that they got the answer that they deserved.
0: (laughs) Okay, let's now slip into the negative.
1: Well, the negative, the debate, uh, the constant roiling debate is the same one we've been having for the last two years nearly. Uh, We've been asking whether the media has undermined our COVID response. And lately, this argument's taken the form of a debate over whether the media forced the government's hand in, still debatable, but giving up on elimination and switching to suppression. And Josh Drummond, he's a trained journalist, and he wrote a lengthy post on his Substack blog. He argued that what he called opinionists have played a part in attacking public health. And a lot of the post is just devoted to fact-checking some of the most spurious anti-lockdown bluster from the last 18 months or so. And look, I've done a bunch of that. I won't do it again tonight. I won't rehash all of that sort of stuff. But the overarching thing is that these op-eds likely diminish compliance with lockdowns, and in doing so, sort of sabotaged the elimination strategy so here is josh tonight he got picked up by the project if you've got this huge platform it's a bit of a spider-man situation with great power comes great responsibility if you have hundreds of thousands or even millions of people listening to you on the daily then please make make sure that you've got it right okay so that's josh drummond on the project he does have some evidence for the assertion that media narratives have started to play into our health response so covid response minister chris hipkins has now repeatedly blamed declining social license for the government's decision to move to level three and he said media coverage was a factor in identifying this diminishing public buy-in so we played this clip on sunday's media watch but i'll replay it now no but we we've certainly had clear feedback that i think the mood is fraying correspondence uh you know the, the mood on the street the media coverage there is clearly a uh, Your Facebook Messenger and... and how you no, no, on. not at all. He rejected the, the the idea that maybe his Facebook Messenger inbox was also <laughs> responsible for the government's decision-making. Uh, just I, I
0: wonder how much time they've got to really focus on uh, what's being said in the media.
1: Well, it seems that they're at least focusing on it a bit because Chris Hipkins isn't the only guy in the government who has talked about taking the opinion columnists and their opinions into account when they're making their decisions. So uh, in a post on his Facebook page defending the rollout of the vaccination program for Māori uh, this week, willie jackson actually wrote i ask you all to seriously consider what would have happened this is a direct quote to seriously consider what would have happened if we as a government vaccinated every maori before everyone else in the country could you imagine the backlash could you imagine what judith collins david seymour mike hosking barry soper and the rest of the right-wing nutters would have said The political anger would have seen all we have achieved thrown aside so that that last sentence is a real key one that willie is Picking up there, they seem to think that these opinion columnists and their anger will help to undermine the health response. So that's what they're saying. On the yeah, other, but,
0: hand, but but hang on, he's a, he's an me- old media hack himself from way back. So yeah, you know, maybe he's putting too much emphasis on uh, you know on Mike Hosking, Barry Soper, David Seymour, etc.
1: But this is this is an insight into that at least. And the very least, the government is saying that these people are playing on their minds. These are both ministers. Remember, this isn't just this isn't just a, a backbencher MP that has a bit of time on their hands. These are both ministers, and Chris Hopkins is a COVID response minister.
0: Yes, but Chris Hopkins take... has not been a you know a talkback host.
1: He hasn't. But I mean, I'm just saying that these guys are playing on their mind. But I yes. mean, absolutely, you're right. A lot of people are saying this is a cop out, right? I mean, this is a government. <laughs> That, 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 that's blaming the media for what, what its decisions are when it controls every single lever of power. So, so who do you believe? I thought that I would host tonight a debate between myself and myself to settle this. Are we ready?
0: <laughs> okay. So what's the case for the media being innocent here?
1: Okay. Media innocent. This boils down to the fact that it is... Plainly preposterous to blame the media for the actions of the first majority government since the nineteen nineties. And Labour has fifty percent of the seats in Parliament, can govern alone, it can act it can enact whatever policy it likes, it has the entire public service at its disposal, and surely in that position can't be bullied by a few bleating columns from the Mike Hoskins and the Heather DePlissey Allens of the World, as you say. Do they even have time to read them? And furthermore, if we're looking at the things that have been responsible for elimination failing, is that where we should look first? Absolutely not. We should look to the tardy vaccination programme, particularly among Māori and Pacifica, which is what Willie Jackson was talking about in that Facebook post. Or we could look to MIQ's pretty obviously shaky containment protocols, which I think newsrooms covered, uh, or the lack of investment in preparing contact tracing for the Delta outbreak. That's, again, newsrooms covered that. Uh, The data we actually do have shows that compliance with the Level 4 rules was still reasonably high, even as the government blames lack of social licence and lack of compliance for the Level 3 move. So all of that sort of goes against the narrative that this is all the media's fault.
0: Okay, that's on the side of the innocent on the debate. You can move to the other side of the table now. What's the case for the media being guilty?
1: Media guilty. Have you ever been to the voyages, Karen? The the media awards ceremony... (laughs) I've been a couple of times... Every single time I go, here's what the narrative is. We hold power to account. We keep tyranny at bay. The politicians, they wilt before our unswerving scrutiny. We are a powerful force in society. We are reflecting people's voices, and we are making sure that their voices are heard in government. So we say that thing when we are talking up our best journalism and when we're talking up what we can achieve. And then when people are mad about the government enacting a policy that the media called for, and they go, oh no, our words are wind. They're weightless and transitory. It's unfair to say that they could actually change anything. But if we don't expect our opinion columns to actually change anything, why do we write them? I mean, obviously you say clicks and money, but that's a bit too cynical. Surely we actually think that the thing we're proposing might actually happen. Otherwise, why do we write these things? In the newspaper. So, ultimately, what's happening here is that the government's trying to implement an all but unenforceable set of rules in the form of level level four, right? And they require almost 100% compliance. And the media platforming and endless series of inexpert sort of COVID blowhards might have made the difference to the buyer needed to make that work. This is the argument, right? Like. I mean, even if these elimination naysayers just put off a few thousand people, that can have dire results, because this is not something that the government can actually keep a handle on through its levers of power. And so you really want to be using your platform, as Josh Drummond says wisely.
0: Okay. well, I won't hold up a scorecard, but who wins the argument?
1: I'm lily living. I think it's reasonably risable for... Labour partisans to suggest that a majority government with the entire public service at its disposal couldn't have stood up to Mike Hosking if it really wanted to. It does It ultimately owns its decisions and I think it's also irritating when some of these critics lump in the good critical news reporting that we've seen from people like Mark Dolder, Joe Moyer, Michael Mora, others uh, and they lump that in as somehow undermining the response. No actually it was strengthening the response but I think for us as the media to essentially just wash our hands of any influence is that's inconsistent with our own marketing messages, right? And most likely reality because, I mean, we have some of the biggest platforms in the country allowing a constant chorus of people with no epidemiological experience at all to weigh in on pandemic management. And often they just got things completely wrong or they just omitted really key details about the downsides of what they are proposing. And that was the result of deliberate editorial decisions. And it seems like even if it didn't influence compliance, it at least influenced the perception of compliance and the perception of how feasible these rules would be going forward. And maybe that wasn't the only factor in the switch to suppression. And maybe it wasn't anything like the biggest. It probably wasn't. But I don't think it was irrelevant. And as the next days and months play out, I think we could probably have a bit of a look in the mirror about the quality of the stuff that we platform.
0: Right, and obviously the outcome is very, very important for the nation. So, you know, we, we do have to be careful. And speaking of being careful, let's move on to Winston Peters. Uh, he wasn't exactly being cautious
1: over the weekend. Not 100% cautious either. So on Saturday's episode of The Nation, Winston made an explosive claim. He said that a COVID-positive person who travelled to Northland was ushered across the border by Harry Tam. And that assertion is... I mean, I'm putting it mildly disputed. Uh, police tracked down a woman who travelled with the COVID-positive person across the Northland border in West Auckland recently, and uh, Harry Tam says that he isn't her. Uh, despite the best, I mean, it's at best shaky nature of what Peter's asserted, uh, Simon Shepherd, the host of the nation, didn't really push back too hard against it. He He did ask... Peters to reassure him that his sources were good but that was about as strong as he got and I mean maybe there is a reason for that. I mean Ben Thomas was a commentator on that show later on and he reminded the audience that Peter, Peters is, usually reserves his most legally risky claims for when he's protected by parliamentary privilege and is, is more believable outside of that. But uh, This is still an incredibly risky thing to broadcast. I mean I spoke to a media lawyer today and He just said that the assertion that Tam smuggled someone across the northern border in defiance of COVID laws, that's defamatory if it's untrue. That's what Tam told Jack Tame of TVNZ Sunday. He said it's untrue and he's speaking to his lawyers. So that presents risks to whoever he decides to take action against. And that could be just Peters himself, a blockbuster Tam versus Peters showdown in court. But broadcasters are also responsible uh, for whatever goes to air on their channel or their station, even if it's live, you'll probably remember this as a, as, as a, as a talkback host, they can be sued too, even if something goes to air live on their station. And depends uh, whether uh, it's,
0: it's uh, seen as opinion or not.
1: Yeah, so there's, there's, there's more protections there. This is, this is a statement of fact. But the lawyer I spoke to actually said he was surprised that talkback stations aren't sort of taken to task more regularly. Uh, on on this issue and and being held legally responsible for some of the stuff that does go to air if it's a bit more questionable but anyway the, (laughs) the this that's maybe by the by i guess the main thing that he said was that uh the main thing that the station should have done is just challenge peters immediately and perhaps pause the broadcast to say the allegation not verified and they'll be following it up with tam as soon as possible so In 2018, there was a new defence against defamation that that got implemented uh, in Jury versus Gardner. Uh, This allowed uh, media companies to argue that they'd communicated information in the public interest and had reported it responsibly, but that just means stuff like giving a chance to respond, reporting in a neutral tone, et cetera, et cetera, all that sort of stuff. And so how a media company actually handles this sort of allegation uh, can really help its defence later on.
0: Yeah, so what could The Nation uh, actually have done, though, because it was a live broadcast? Uh,
1: So I guess it's just challenging the assertion straight away and saying that you're going to get the other side of the story and then endeavouring to get it. That hasn't really taken place. Apparently, I didn't see this replay, but apparently that allegation was edited out of the show on Sunday, but the full interview is still online with the allegation in it, and there's a web story underneath that quotes Jack Tame, quoting Tam about his denial. But it remains to be seen uh, uh, whether there's going to be any actual legal action that gets taken out of this, but we will be monitoring it because uh, Harry Tam versus Winston Peters versus potentially News Hub as well could be a pretty interesting uh, court case.
0: Okay, uh, lots of text come through for you. Um, And regarding op-eds... Uh, we have op-eds because it is cheaper to generate them than it is to produce actual news content, i.e. facts.
1: Yes, absolutely, and they make money. There, There is a hard commercial reality here that this is actually the cheapest type of content to make. There's, there's a big discussion that we can have about media um, funding models and all that sort of stuff and whether actually just going for the most clicks is actually the best possible funding model. There's increasing evidence that it's not and that actually advertisers respond to trust. And actually, audiences put their support and their dollars behind trustworthy news sources as well. Stuff's obviously gone all in on that strategy. There are these platforms that just try and maximize clicks. And so I go, oh, they shouldn't do this. They shouldn't do this. It's it's not the right thing to do. But really, their business model is compelling them forward to just try and get the most controversy and the most clicks. And sometimes that's okay, right? Sometimes that's not so bad. But in a pandemic... There was an article in The Conversation on the weekend about what happens to this country if we have endemic COVID. And it's dire and it's grim, and I encourage people to look it up. It's an overwhelmed hospital system. It's people's deaths. And that is something that you can surely draw as a company, especially a company that also publishes The Herald and NZ case, that tries to sell itself on trustworthiness and, and quality. Surely there's a line there that you should be absolutely trying to navigate this crisis in the, with the best uh, possible journalism and the most possible fact fact-based content and elevating the experts as often as possible and I think and not just the NZME, me but others have fallen down on that front. That's my uh, d- rant over. D- sorry, sorry texter, that was a lot. Long- <laughs> just a uh,
0: rec- quick comment. Quick comment, Hayden. Garrett says, your media man, that'll be you, seems unaware of a vital element in defamation actions. The plaintiff must have a reputation worth protecting. I won't read the rest of it. (laughs) Okay. 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 I won't read the rest of it uh, because I don't have a dump button. But, hey, thank you very much, Hayden.
1: Uh, I'll let you get back to what?
0: Changing nappies?
1: Uh, I I change a few nappies, but I have a two-year-old as well, so a lot of my time now is actually taking care of the two-year-old.